A young perspective on hot button issues around the world. This is the Hub. Hello and welcome to the Hub on CGTN. I'm Zhao Yang, sitting in for Wang Guan. A U.S. climate envoy John Kerry was just in China for a visit from July 16th to 19th, and this visit aimed at reviving climate cooperation between the world's top greenhouse gas emitters comes at an especially apt time given the waves of extreme weather across the planet. During a meeting with Chinese Premier Li Tiang on Tuesday, Kerry said the United States is willing to strengthen cooperation with China to jointly address climate change and other pressing global challenges. And push for the success of the 28th session of the Conference of the Parties, COP28. Uh, that's to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So, what can we expect ahead of the COP28 in November, and how can China-U.S. cooperation better address climate change? And also, does Kerry's trip to Beijing and former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's surprise visit on Tuesday, at the age of 100 years old, for that matter, herald healthier and more sustainable bilateral relations? To discuss all of this, I'm pleased to be joined in Beijing by Ma Jun, director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, in New York by Dmitry Deboer, chief representative for China Client Earth, in Accra by Sarah Jane Ahmed, global leader and advisor to the Vulnerable 20 Group of the Climate Vulnerable Forum, and in Shanghai by Joseph Gregory Mahoney, professor of politics at East China Normal University. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. So we want to start by、uh, taking a look at China-U.S. relations generally and、uh, their climate cooperation. And if we can、uh, start with Professor Mahoney, so John Kerry's visit、uh, follows U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's. He's the third senior Biden administration's official、uh, in about a month to travel to China for these high-level meetings. What do you make of this frequent visits, and what's the signaling? Well, it's possible we're seeing a compressed schedule because the meetings were delayed initially by Biden and Blinken's、uh, balloon brouhaha.、Uh, it's possible they're happening quickly because they need to keep the ball rolling to ensure that、uh, other disruptions don't derail them. And we know other things are possibly coming from the U.S. side, like new provocations via Taiwan and、uh, close encounters in the South China Sea, as well as possibly、uh, new outbound、uh, FBI restrictions and company blacklists. So perhaps、uh, the most uh, optimistic, uh, but but still sober analysis here suggests the two sides are redefining in practical terms where they'll compete、uh, versus cooperate. Which,、uh, while better than unrestricted competition,、uh, we should、uh, recall、uh, the, the historical context that both the U.S. and the former Soviet Union also、uh, cultivated opportunities for cooperation during the Cold War. But you know, it's also possible that Biden wants to get these meetings out of the way as soon as possible because he'll want to pivot once again. Two provocations、uh, to pander to the anti-China hysteria that he and Trump helped create among Americans、uh, as his campaign for re-election heats up. And in a worst-case scenario, we may see、uh, several meetings, but no real progress. And then Biden might declare that he tried to work with Beijing but failed, and then use this to justify advancing his still unrelenting efforts to encircle and suppress China's development. But perhaps in a positive sign, Kerry did emphasize our、uh, efforts to stabilize this bilateral relationship、uh, when he was meeting with、uh, Premier Li Tiang and、um, Professor Mahoney.、Uh, you know,、uh, Premier Li said that, especially in the face of、uh, global challenges like climate change, he said that、uh, China and the U.S. need to strengthen coordination with consensus and speed of action. So, what should be the next steps to speed things up? 
Well, you know, politically, Biden has two constituencies that want him to make progress against climate change. Uh, first, there's a significant percentage of American voters who care deeply about the environment, including some who've grown disillusioned with him for expanding oil drilling in Alaska and other reasons. And he'll need these voters in the next election. Second, there are many in Europe who feel the same way. And Biden needs to court them as well as he reconsolidates uh, U.S. hegemony against Russia and China. These are his uh, fundamental uh, uh, calculations. Now, you know, we didn't see any new breakthroughs from Kerry's visit, in part, I think, because the U.S. was trying to pressure China disingenuously to accelerate emissions curbs, which Beijing rejected. Uh, now, most experts agree, uh, however, that the next logical steps include going back to the agreements reached during uh, COP26 and finding ways to implement them and then improving coordination at this year's COP28. But obviously, you know, the best thing for both sides presently is to avoid uh, new antagonisms that might again derail climate change cooperation altogether and to continue to make real progress on their own, if nothing else. And these efforts should be accelerated uh, because we don't know if Trump or someone like him might win the next election and once again withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement uh, while also promoting the idea that climate change is somehow an anti-American hoax. Well, we have also seen uh, Henry Kissinger visiting uh, Beijing at the same time as Kerry, and he met with uh, Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu, as well as with uh, Chinese top diplomat Wang Yi. Um, Professor Mahoney, what do you think of uh, this attempt at uh, preventing a free fall in relations, and you know, where do you see China-U.S. relations heading then? You know, every time I see Kissinger come to China, it makes me feel young. Uh, but as we all know, he was born uh, a century ago in the Weimar Republic, uh, that short-lived government that existed before the Nazis came to power. So he's a very old man, and I'm not so young uh, anymore either. Now, he, while he's uh, uh, definitely a celebrated uh, icon of those initial critical steps taken in the early 1970s to improve China-U.S. relations, uh, leading to the end of the uh, Cold War against China, and while he's long advocated better relations, he appears, uh, unfortunately, increasingly a man out of his time. Uh, in fact, he's recently indicated uh, that something like a new Cold War between the, the two countries has returned. But having uh, been such a long witness of history and having played some pivotal roles, it's great that he's still alive and still reaching out. You know, as Marx said, history repeats itself, uh, first as tragedy and then as farce. And I think the key is uh, to be wise enough to avoid the foolishness of the second go around. So while Kissinger doesn't wield the same amount of influence uh, among uh, U.S. policymakers uh, today, uh, the example of his visit to Beijing is a clear effort to remind uh, Washington and Beijing that better things are possible and necessary despite a dark horizon. But, you know, I think the key lesson uh, to be learned from Kissinger is that he knows that the first Cold War was a tragedy. And however farcical the second would be, it risks the same. I think this is what Biden and others in Washington don't seem to understand. They appear to have a nostalgia for what they perceive erroneously as a great American triumph against the Soviet Union, and in many respects want to relive that fantasy against China. But in my analysis, China won the first Cold War and is well positioned to win a second. And I think Kissinger realizes this as well and wants the U.S. to change course accordingly. Unfortunately, this is not a widely held viewpoint, but as Wang Yi noted, the U.S. needs Kissinger-style wisdom. Well, let's bring uh, Mr. Ma into this conversation. Um, Mr. Ma, so China and the U.S., do you think they can set aside their rivalry for climate action? I mean, can eco-environmental cooperation, as uh, Kerry put it, redefine China-U.S. relations? Yeah, we all hope so. You know, I very much agree with Professor Mahani that, uh, 
you know, our relationship uh, at this moment is uh, at a historic low, and actually on the horizon we're seeing stormy seas, uh, very, very difficult situation. But among all these issues, I think tackling of climate change is one of the very few that the two countries still share very similar views and also share a common responsibility. These two countries are the world's largest economies. And in the meantime, the largest current greenhouse gas emitters, uh, our, our greenhouse gas emission, the CO2 emission put together, is, uh, is nearly half of the global total. So it is absolutely important, urgent, for these two countries to come to work together. So it's very hard, uh, in some way, to decouple the relationship on this single most important issue to the mankind. So we're very happy to see that the two countries, after nearly one year of uh, halt or, uh, in our climate uh, interaction, and, uh, and finally uh, have come together. But we all know that um, the atmosphere of our uh, climate uh, collaboration is very much hinges upon the uh, big climate of uh, China-U.S. relations and all the expressions of uh, collaboration, all the hopes, all the list uh, that we uh, agreed upon depends on a Sino-U.S. relations uh, that uh, we all hope that can come back to normal. But it's unlikely to be without uh, conditions. So, Mr. Deboa, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Uh, what do you think both countries will want to secure from each other to make climate cooperation and relations work? What would be on their wish list, per se? Well, uh, thank you, Jan. I think uh, uh, it, it really shouldn't be uh, such a game. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, China and the U.S. both stand to lose from climate change, and we're seeing that already now. Uh, heat waves are affecting both countries in very serious ways. Um, and I'm quite sure that people's lives are being affected in ways that we hadn't anticipated even a few years ago. Food production could be heavily affected. Economies are being disrupted. Um, so at this point, it's not really a question of, oh, could you please this and could you please that? It's really a, much more of a matter of each, each country looking very carefully at, at its own climate transition and doing what's possible uh, as soon as possible. And that's uh, uh, what I think all the countries in the world will want to see from China and the United States right now. Because, as has been mentioned, uh, both countries uh, are, are a fair, uh, large, a large share of the global emissions. And so there's no time to wait for the other to do something. Absolutely. I think we can all agree that China and the U.S., you know, as superpowers and also the biggest polluters, they do need to work together to make a difference on climate change. Um, and Mr. Kerry uh, did say that he wanted to promote a successful COP28 uh, in November in the UAE. That's why he's uh, one reason why he's here. Um, Mr. Deboa, are you optimistic for some concrete commitments from COP28? What are you hoping to come from it? Well, I think COP28 will be a moment when uh, all countries are going to come together and say, gosh, um, we, we actually didn't even think that it would be this bad. Um, and so there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on, um, on the delegations to do something uh, better. Um, you know, the uh, UNFCCC, uh, the world's climate change uh, uh, convention, was agreed in 92. That's 30 years ago. Uh, in the meantime, we've seen 30 years of, of increasing emissions around the world. Um, the UN Secretary General is screaming uh, for us to reduce emissions, to try to halve global emissions by 2030. Uh, and as it stands, countries are not on track at all uh, mm. to do that. And so 
the public pressure on uh, COP28 will be huge. What we hope to see, of course, is that countries will uh, uh, raise their ambitions somehow, uh, will double down on, on achieving the commitments that they've already made, and will uh, countries like the US and China really may be able to play a huge role in helping the rest of the world decarbonize. Ms. Ahmed, uh, now you work uh, in particular with countries that are systemically vulnerable to climate change and its impact. So same question to you. What do you think, uh, what are you particularly hoping for the kind of outcomes and commitments from the COP28? Um, so I think in terms of the success, um, it would be useful if both China and the U.S. actually be bold in challenging one another through action. Mm -hmm. um, and both need to focus on three items. One, on loss and damage and adaptation. These are critical for the most vulnerable. A successful COP28 means certainty in climate finance resources. The U.S. needs to show it is not only ready, but eager to carry their fair share of contributions in resource mobilization, given their role as a large historical emitter. But China needs to recognize it has an entire arena to win if it drives the loss and damage debate. Rich countries rightly shoulder the burden of justice and responsibility on this issue. But China's opportunity is that of demonstrating what developing country solidarity looks like. It must use its considerable experience in building, repairing, replacing, and modernizing infrastructure in the face of worsening climate impacts. And on adaptation, China can only expect full partners among vulnerable nations determined to establish more resilient domestic infrastructure. Number two, the U.S. and China need to cut emissions as rapidly as possible, just to echo my other colleagues here. Um, and China is likely in the best position to do so because of its global leadership in renewable energy. Resilience is the floor of vulnerable country ambition, and the main goal is prosperity. And so we need to build out a lot of infrastructure, which should translate to compelling opportunities to expand common prosperity-driven low-carbon partnerships for China ma in manufacturing, especially in offshore wind. And three, on multilateral reform, in the lead-up to COP28 is an opportunity to illustrate real leadership through sincere and consistent multilateral co cooperation. As we know, any lasting solution on climate will require a reform of the international financial architecture that is supportive of the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups. Um, and so the V20 put together the Accra Marrakesh agenda with the aim to cement an international coalition backing a fit for climate global financial system. And what's interesting about the roadmap is that it'll be finalized in Marrakesh and that the sister organization of the V20 called the Climate Vulnerable Forum in 2016 during COP22 has shared history with China. It was in Marrakesh where China was the first to openly stand with vulnerable countries. Where Europe was hesitant and the US did not show up, China didn't hesitate in responding to the call for shared global leadership with the most vulnerable. And this year in October 2023, we have the opportunity once again to succeed encouraged by multilateralism to deliver shared prosperity through the Accra Marrakesh agenda, where cooperation with China can underpin not just an abstract global goal, but development success of our 58 member countries now representing 1.5 billion people. And this is the real big prize. This week, a national conference on ecological and environmental protection was held in Beijing and Chinese President Xi Jinping stressed efforts to build a beautiful China in all respects and advance modernization with uh, what he called human nature harmony. Um, he also said that Beijing has undergone a major transformation from a participant to a leader in global climate change. So, Mr. Ma, if we can bring you in now, um, what are your main takeaways from this conference and do you see China's transformative role happening and in what ways? Yeah, this is a very 
important uh, uh, important meeting. You know, it's a meeting held um, ten years after China initiated uh, uh, massive uh, clean air and clean water and clean soil action plan. And through these efforts, we have seen um, tremendous progress made uh, when it comes to air quality. You know, China managed to improve. Uh, on average, uh, uh, the, the air quality in major cities by around 57 percent. And on the water side, it's also a lot of progress have been achieved. Uh, and China also made the, uh, made the carbon peak and neutrality commitment. Uh, so this, uh, this meeting um, sums up all this um, uh, experience and uh, best practice, and in, in the meantime, try to uh, try, try to set the outlook uh, for 2030, 35, and, uh, and even 20, 2060. So it's a, it's a very important meeting, and um, uh, we're happy to see that, uh, uh, that the green uh, and uh, sustainable development uh, have been upheld as the, uh, one of the fundamental uh, pillars in China's overall development strategy and um, uh, tackling climate change uh, is uh, absolutely one of the most important part of that. Well, Mr. Ma, um, President, you did also say that uh, treatment of new pollutants responsible for climate change needs to be a key sector in China's uh, fundamental research. Um, can you expand on that a little bit for us? And um, what areas should China prioritize in order to achieve uh, environmental protection? China's facing, still facing a multiple set of challenges. Uh, you know, we have made uh, uh, major progress in terms of pollution control, but our, uh, our our quality of the environment is still far from the standards of uh, WHO. So still, you know, pollution control, uh, we need to carry that forward. And in the meantime, you know, biodiversity, China, um, along with uh, uh, the whole world, need to address the uh, increasing uh, pressing challenges on the biodiversity side. And last but not least, it's the uh, the climate. The mm. climate um, uh, challenges are really pressing and uh, uh, really very, very urgent challenges. And when it comes to the, uh, the new pollutants, it actually means uh, that all these pollutants that can generate uh, toxins and uh, which can harm, uh, harm the people. Uh, but on the, on, on the climate change side, uh, uh, I think the most important is to try to uh, transform China's energy uh, and uh, energy sector, uh, which is still, um, you know, China made major progress on renewables. You know, China's on its track to achieve its uh, renewable target, uh, the 2030 target by 2025. Uh, and, um, and on the new vehicle uh, target, it's also being surpassed. The 2025 target being surpassed last year. So China made progress on that. Still, you know, we're still uh, a uh, generate one third of the global, uh, nearly one third of the global carbon emission. So, um, so, uh, and much of that is uh, is because of our uh, coal-based uh, uh, mm -hmm. energy energy uh, mix. So we need to hasten the process to transform that, and then along with that, the uh, try to en enhance the uh, energy and carbon efficiency of our industry and then our transportation system. Well, China is actually also uh, one of the world's biggest investors in uh, renewable energy, and so is the United States for that matter, despite being the biggest polluters. Um, 
uh, with one assessment, one assessment said that China actually makes up for more than half of the world's total renewable energy investment. And Global Energy Monitor uh, says that China is on track to meet its 2030 wind and solar targets five years ahead of schedule. And uh, I'd like to share a set of statistics here uh, with everyone. So China's combined onshore and offshore wind capacity has surpassed 310 gigawatts with its offshore wind capacity reaching 31.4 gigawatts. Now that exceeds the operating offshore capacity of all of Europe. And regarding operating large utility scale solar capacity, China has reached 228 gigawatts. That's more than the rest of the world combined. So clearly China is making major steps. But uh, Mr. Deboa, when do you think we'll see that translate into results when it comes to emissions? Because that still hasn't really fallen and China, you know, and China meeting its climate target. Is China doing enough for that? Yeah, thank you, Yang. I think that's the question that we're all the most interested in, really, is, um, you know, this renewable energy deployment that's going so fast now, um, it's extremely promising. Uh, you know, costs are falling, um, and uh, the volumes of renewable energy that China's currently deploying have totally surpassed everybody's expectations, including China's expectations, right? Targets for 2030 uh, are already expected to be met in 2025. Um, and those were only set uh, a few years ago. So um, what does this mean? Uh, so all this capacity of wind uh, and solar that is becoming available uh, is great news for China, but I think it also is great news for the world because um, the whole world is going to need to go through this energy transition in the coming years. So there's a tremendous demand for these renewable energy solutions. Um, and where only a few years ago, uh, renewable energy was the more expensive option, these days that's no longer the case. It's becoming such that uh, wind and solar are actually cheaper than fossil fuels. And that is going to really change the mindset around the world about what it means uh, to, to, to make a quick uh, energy transition. Um, Ms. Ahmed, so you were earlier talking about uh, the need for more infrastructure on the, in the world to support uh, renewable energy. So China has been cooperating with uh, other countries to uh, implement and to build a clean energy projects. Uh, for example, a hydropower plant in the Côte d'Ivoire, a thermal power plant in Morocco, um, also a wind farm in Pakistan. Some of these are um, you know, countries that are vulnerable to climate change the most. Um, through these projects, what sort of role do you think uh, China is playing and what kind of prospects do you see for cross-border cooperation and international collaboration on combating climate change? Uh, yeah, China definitely has a crucial role in supporting developing countries' energy transition, such as offshore wind in Sri Lanka and solar in Ghana. Uh, the V20 countries, which represents 58 developing countries, soon to be 68 in October, are creating these climate prosperity plans, which identify uh, key high-value projects um, and programs for food security, energy security, and high-value-add industry. So there are significant opportunities, especially for the Belt and Road Initiative, to deliver shared green growth and shared prosperity through strengthened economic partnerships in the form of climate-centered investment and trade, including green technology sharing through China's manufacturing capacity and innovative partnerships, especially to capitalize electricity grid operators across V20, skills sharing programs, supporting businesses and accelerating the solutions we need to solve the climate crisis with urgency, scale and quality of investment. And so with that, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, uh, that China is in the best position to deliver. 
Um, Mr. Deboa, earlier you were talking about the um, you know, renewable energy becoming more cost-effective as well, and uh, Mr. Matt did mention about the China's coal and renewable energy mix here. What's, uh, what's your view on uh, where China stands on that? You know, because this is a problem that a lot of countries are facing, the U.S. in the same conundrum. You know? um, its emissions peaked last year, uh, emissions increased last year because of the need to combat, say, extreme weather. It's a very realistic uh, the reality that countries are facing. How do you achieve that balance, Mr. DeBoer? Well, the big thing here is that, uh, you know, as if you have enough renewable energies uh, deployed, uh, then it becomes a matter of making sure that the, those resources are being utilized. Um, and so that requires uh, grid adaptations. Um, it requires investments also in energy storage, uh, because, of course, renewable energies um, uh, are more variable, let's say, in their output than uh, some uh, fossil fuel solutions. But uh, these are technical uh, and financial questions that need to be solved. Uh, China, I think, is is trying very hard now to solve that. Um, the the need for energy security is is obvious. Every country needs to have energy security, uh, also in the face of global shocks uh, and also in the face of um, extreme weather. Uh, so so this makes it more more tricky uh, to ensure uh, you know an absolutely steady uh, energy supply, um, but. Um, uh, my expectation for China is that that can be uh, achieved quite soon, and and the, uh, hopefully that will be done, you know, with as much renewable energy as possible. So that what we'll see is that all of this wind and solar is really going to be uh, me leading to less coal being burned. Uh, mm. You know, it's it's the burning of the fossil fuels that's causing this problem of climate change, and so that's uh, that's really where the, the million dollar question is. Mm. Um, Mr. Mahoney, if we can just bring you back in, uh, our last question, you know, we are seeing these extreme uh, impacts from extreme weather caused by climate change and COP28 coming up. Uh, what's your message to global leaders? What kind of mindset do you think they should be adopting? You know, it's a, it's a hot world on the brink of a Cold War, and these two crises are intersecting with each other now, along with others, uh, like the pandemic and efforts to recover from it, uh, the conflict in Ukraine and so on. Now, there's strong science to suggest that COVID-19 and other outbreaks are caused in part by climate change and that more outbreaks may be coming as a result. Uh, simultaneously, we see the, the rapid rise of generative AI, another type of disruptive uh, singularity event. So Beijing's messaging here uh, remains appropriate. Uh, we're in a new era, uh, one that requires emphasizing whenever possible win-win cooperation uh, versus zero-sum competition. We need to promote ecological civilization genuine multilateralism and resist uh, military block building and trade wars. And we need to do this to ensure a shared future for humanity against these mounting existential threats uh, that uh, imperil all of us. Right. Thank you so much, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney. And thank you to all of our guests, Ma Jun, Dimitri Deboa and Sarah Jane Ahmed. Really appreciate it. And we'll leave it there on this edition of The Hub. I'm Zhao Yang standing in for Wang Guan. Bye for now.